This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Services, heating, cooling, and plumbing experts. Horizonservices.com. I want you to listen to someone like you've never heard him before. If you're a fan of sports radio in Philadelphia, this will strike a familiar chord. Al, I do not want to, in the final segment of our show, not one last time rip somebody. Okay. I think it's important for us to remain consistent. All right. And Mike from Voorhees is on. Mike, are you happy with Jonathan Gannon? Nobody escaped the wrath of Angelo Cataldi. The bigger they were, the harder Angelo came at them. What a phony Joe Banner was. Yeah. All right? Joe Banner, all Joe Banner did in the years he was a president of the team is alienate everyone else in the city, including the other teams. He said that you could use a hoagie as a weapon. Yep. Beat to death with salami. (laughs) (laughs) But for much of the next hour plus, Angelo and I will talk about his struggle with depression, his inability to balance work with the rest of his life, and how it cost him his first marriage, and other remarkably candid forays into a life Angelo's listeners have never heard about. This all comes on the heels of the publication of Angelo's book, It's Called Loud. But ironically, much of it is quiet in its thoughtfulness and its self-revelation. And yes, there's plenty of the Angelo Cataldi we know as well. So please enjoy my conversation with Angelo Cataldi. Angelo Cataldi, a legendary name, a legendary presence, uh, certainly for every sports fan, in the Philadelphia region, um, and now you're retired. How's it going? Um, it was fun the first couple of months when I wrote my book, and then I did kind of hit a wall for a while. And um, it was a question of who am I now? You know, your identity was so tied with your career that you're not sure who you are. But I think I'm on the other end of it now, and I think I realized that. Um, you have to reprioritize at some point. You can't do what you're doing forever. And um, hopefully I'm on track now to emphasize the things that are more important, like family and um, just enjoying the things in life that you tend to push aside to get further in your career. And I'm working right now on trying to get to that point. I was, I was just going to ask... Um you're going to get to your real retirement now that the book is done. And are you concerned about that or are you relaxed about the idea that, uh, you know, when, when the book is promotion is done and Angelo Cataldi is truly retired, uh, what is that going to be like? The thing is I've been fueled by my obsessions in both uh, journalism and in broadcasting to the extent that I won't know who that person is until I don't have an obsession. Because the minute I finished my radio career, I became obsessed with writing this book, and now I'm promoting the book. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I'm seeing Dr. Joe Fish, sports psychologist, who is a regular on my show, on, on a weekly basis. And he's helping me to understand how to get past the frustrations of no longer being who you were, And he does it with athletes who are in their 30s. People have a whole career to go, but they're no longer the athlete they were. And I figured he'd be the perfect person to help somebody who is way beyond that 
and still trying to find a new identity. So I'm, I'm in the process of that now. But I probably won't know until I'm done. I'm actually done with um, promoting this book. Then I'll know. Not to belabor this point, but um, you said in your book, and let me read a quote, when you leave after a long time at a job, a few things happen that you won't realize until you experience them yourself. One is you automatically become a legend, which is another word for old, and finally you feel lost. What is it like for Angelo Cataldi to feel lost? Hmm. Well, I, I still emote after games, but the only person that hears me is my wife or Sometimes she would leave the room, then it would be my dog. So I'm still, I'm lost because I don't have a voice that I had for 33 years in Philadelphia. That, um, you know, there was something that happened earlier uh, when uh, my old station, WIP, um, organized a standing ovation for Trey Turner, who was making $300 million and not playing well. And, um, like, I hated that. I would have tried to sabotage it if I was still there. Because? Because my definition of the Philadelphia sports fan is we don't praise failure. We, we don't give standing ovations to people that don't deserve them because then we have devalued them when somebody does deserve it. But it worked. Trey Turner became a different baseball player after they organized this standing ovation for him. Not only that, but mm. but the country began to see yeah. the Philadelphia fans in a different context. Well, oh, I mean, all of a sudden we were empathic. That's what I. That's what I'm hoping to try to accomplish in some respect in the book, because I saw these people a lot differently than the lazy narrative around a country, which is they're a bunch of thugs. They're drunk half the time. They're fighting in the stands. All they do is boo their own players. Yeah, all of that. That's all part of the passion. But the the other part of it was um, the the positive passion. You know, I had a guy who called in my station. who's was a regular caller. Kidney dialysis. He's going to die within a few years. Kenny Justice. 28 people donated uh, body parts based on a voice on the radio. What I'm saying, Jim, is that the, the people haven't worked hard enough. When you have a great sports city like Philadelphia, yeah, there's it cuts both ways. They are going to overreact to things and go crazy. But who doesn't remember what it was like in this city after the Eagles won the Super Bowl for weeks? And what I hope to do in the book was capture that mood too and show people that as negative as they can be, they can be just as positive in big moments. And we used to hold radiothons at WIP when I was there. I'm sure they still do. Tremendous reaction and, and giving and charity. That part of it doesn't get told. And I feel like the people deserve um, a better definition of who the Philadelphia sports fan is. No question that your book was devoted to Philadelphia sports fans, but it also, forgive me, um, uh, I think gave your readers uh, a different view of you in some respects. You were stunningly revelatory Thank uh, you. about Angelo Cataldi. Let, let me read another quote. Um, 
The biggest failure of my radio career was never finding a balance between my private life and my public one. It cost me my first marriage and would have cost me my second if I didn't, by pure luck, find someone who understood my predicament. My ambition overpowered everything for far too long. That is a regret I will take to my grave. Wow. I couldn't, I've never been able to balance it. I've never been able to balance it. I've tried to understand why that is because um, I've watched my son who is, very, very committed to my twin grandsons. And um, he figured it out on his own. He certainly didn't get it as a model for me. My first priority was always my career. And um, it's, it was not the right decision, but that's the way I was wired. I was wired like that when I was um, an undergraduate at the University of Rhode Island and determined to get A's in every single class and get out of school in less than three years and do all those things. It was always just this, this commitment, this, this, this obsession with showing I was good at something at, at the exclusion of too much other things. But I do believe that if you don't put all that concentration into it, you'll be less successful. Um, you will tell me if I'm, if I'm, being too intrusive, um, did your first wife say, Angela, you're losing me. You know, you're losing this marriage if you don't change. Did you have no, a warning was, that, that, that things were going south and still you couldn't, you couldn't accommodate the moment? Um, she pretty much understood who I was. And um, when I got a job offer to work at the Philadelphia Inquirer and said, uh, we need to move to Philadelphia. She started packing. So she was pretty supportive. She kind of knew what she was getting into because she knew who I was. I was married for 24 years. Um, but no, I never got, I can't say there was a red light anywhere in this process where I went, or a caution light where I would go, don't, you know, back off. You know, you don't have to watch that game. You don't have to read all that stuff before you go on the air. But, um, but I did. I didn't know how to do it halfway. And, you know, that's a regret. That's a big regret. When you retire, you start to look back at that stuff and say, well, why did I do it that way? I want you to do me a favor. Um, the fourth mm -hmm. quote there. Mm -hmm. Would you read that for me? Absolutely. When people ask me why I never let up, not for one segment or one show, I always blame my father, who used to say to me, they're not paying you to goof off. So I never did. And as I look back now, my intensity was a double-edged sword. Yes, it gave us the best product we could deliver every day, but it also alienated people behind the scenes, many of those people as committed to success as I was. So how do I say this? Uh, th there are people who know me well and members of my family who would say, Jim, you wrote that. That's not Angelo's wow. words. Those, really? are, those are mine. Um, uh, I don't think my father was talking about goofing off, but he did say, you know, you've got to be productive. Uh, you don't waste time. Having fun for the sake of fun yeah. is a waste of time. Everything you do should lead to something 
that that is productive. And um, I think I have shared, I mean, this is your podcast, not mine, but I think I've shared uh, this reflex is what I've called it, a reflex to over-prepare and to want to be not perfect, but to have this perfectionist reflex and then expect other people to have it too. And when they don't have it, and most people don't, because they do have a better way to yeah. to uh, to balance, uh, to bring a better balance to their to their lives. Um, I became intolerant and made some people feel really uncomfortable, and it took me about thirty years to recognize wow. that that approach to your relationships with your colleagues was not the best way to go about your job or your life. Um, and so I think we shared we shared that um, without knowing each other. I think there's a real commonality there. Did, I mean, did it? Did you get to a point where you realized that, that this was a problem and you were able to fix it? Or, or did this last this lasted, your entire career? It lasted my entire career. And... It was in the back of my mind, Jim, from time to time, but um, more, honestly, more, um, I just wrote it off. I just said, um, if you want to succeed, you have to, um, you have to push other people as well as you. You can't just be there yourself. And um, I didn't fully grasp how many people I had alienated and frustrated um, until one of my interns years after uh, david uram when you say years after you mean while you were still I mean, working i mean the last year I, before i retired he was doing there were a lot of these last interviews mm-hmm. and um he said you know did you realize how hard you were on us how much you demanded from us and i was like i, I paused for a second i went what do you mean and then he offered an example or two of when i was yelling screaming at somebody and I went, but it was all to make the show better. The only thing that mattered was making the show better. And I thought at 10 o'clock when the show was over, everybody would say, yeah, that was worth it because look at how much better the show was because of that. And, um, but you made, their, their, you, you made their work life miserable. It never occurred to me. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Oh, no, I did. And now I see it. And you know what else I see? Maybe a little bit of rubbed off and they became Better. more committed to their work than they would have if I wasn't there. But um, there were all these kind of situations where I look back now and go, there, was, there were other ways to do that. There was ways to be more diplomatic. But in the moment, in the frenzy of getting ready to go on live radio, I didn't calculate that. I just said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this show as good as it can be. And anybody that doesn't like that, they'll leave. And some of them did. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize that people deserve respect. Yeah. They deserve they deserve to have not just their work valued, but but to have themselves valued yeah um, but respect is huge right and if and if you're working with someone and they feel like you don't respect them they're not going to give you um, the best of themselves yeah and 
And everybody deserves respect, right? One way or the other. Yeah. It would, Jim, uh, I wish I had encountered you about 30 years ago. It might have really helped me. <laughs> you know, I'm a, 30 years ago, if somebody, if some, if Jim Gardner said that, I would have gone, wow, you know, he's onto something there. I better, I better well, it took me a long, game. it took me a long time to figure it <laughs> out, too. Uh, I think that's, uh, it's, it's interesting that that's something that we share. Uh, and, and by the way, it is a double edged sword because I do think that that drive helped me perform at a higher level. Yeah. Uh, not in the studio where I never felt comfortable ever uh, until the day I, I retired. Seriously. N- seriously. But in the newsroom and, and in our craft, yeah. being broadcast journalists, there's no question that, that that drive and that sense of perfectionism made me better, but it made my relationships not so good. It's fascinating that you say, because I've watched you for most of the time, you were the anchor at, at uh, WPBI, and um, I never sensed that you were not entirely comfortable in front of a camera. But I was never fully comfortable in front of a microphone. This is interesting. And it fueled my insecurity because I was not trained to do that. I was trained to be a journalist. And the fact that I was in there, I had, um, it's like um, imposter syndrome. I said, why am I even doing this job? I went to good schools and I worked hard to to be a serious journalist, even though I ended up picking sports as the thing I wanted to cover. And now um, I'm doing something I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know any of the terminology. When they would talk about the technical aspects of radio, it was like a different language to me. I didn't understand it at all. So uh, that over prep that I did, I did it much more in radio than I did in journalism, was because I was positive that at any moment I would flop down on my face and make a fool of myself. It was fueled entirely by fear. I promise we're going to talk a lot about your love-hate relationships with sports figures in Philadelphia. <laughs> I promise, Angelo. That's fine. But I do want to focus a little bit on, on a little bit more on Angelo Cataldi that your listeners knew little of. So you have battled with depression at various times in your career. And you say in your book that you have taken antidepressants. Do, do you think your experience with depression was triggered by the pressures of your career, or are there other things as well? It was my insecurity. It was the pressure of, it, it happened in 1995. And this, this clarity has only come to me in the process of doing this book. Um, in 1992, Tom Brookshire left me. Tom Brookshire was a pro. He was a hard worker, and everyone loved him, and he had a bond with the city that no one could ever have. And um, then I got Tony Bruno from WCAU Radio, who was a pro. And he was also the guy I would lean on to be a radio personality. And then he was leaving. And now it was me. And, and uh, well, this probably is not going to go well. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't know that I would ever be ready for it. And I think that that is where the depression kicked in because it happened in the final months before Tony left. And I kind of knew he was leaving. And it, it just reached a point where I could barely function. Um, what, I was, what does that mean? Uh, I was going for a promotional thing for the radio station. I was dressed in a tuxedo. I was in a limousine. 
and I was supposed to make this appearance. And on the way there, I realized that I was not, something was really off. And we pulled up to the spot where I was supposed to make, you know, glad hand people and tell them how much we love them. I guess it was part of a um, Radiothon charity thing. And I told the limo driver to take me home. I couldn't do it. Hmm. And then I started to wonder if I could do the job at all. So I left the job. I went to my boss and I said, um, I need some time off. I, I'm dealing with some things here that I'm not familiar with. And I went to a doctor. They put me on Effexor. And um, I got three weeks. And um, at the end of the three weeks, the doctor said to me, um, this job is eating you up right now. Um, you need to get away from it. You need to shut it down. And I made a promise to the doctor that I would take a two-week vacation, which is very unusual on radio, every year for the purposes of kind of getting past that. And I did that for the rest of the time I was at WIP. I always took a two-week vacation in August. Um, but it was a slow process coming out of it because um, you still have the doubts. You just... You, they give you more different tools to help you through it. The, the, uh, this too shall pass. You say that to yourself a lot when you're depressed. Well, that's how you get past it because life is peaks and valleys. And you have to understand that there are going to be some valleys where you've got to tough it out. And it was a very, very slow process. And I had one other incident much later on in my career. But the threat of it coming back is there all the time. And when I hear people talk about um, depression now, it resonates so much more because I realize, yeah, that's what I had. That's what I went through. So when some of the professional athletes whom we all know uh, have had mental health issues, Lane Johnson, people like that, um, you've got to be empathic about that. You really understand what they're going through. And I was not known for my sensitivity toward no, athletes. No, you, you were not. But that was an area where, that was an area, Jim, where I really did um, attempt to, well, I understood it better. I was never an athlete, so I didn't really know athlete stuff. So if a guy dropped a ball, I just assumed he was conspiring to ruin my week. <laughs> you know? But um, yeah, this, that, that part probably made me a little more sensitive, at least to some of the mental health issues that athletes deal with like everybody else. You have said that the biggest disconnect in your career is that your resume includes both Columbia University and Wing Bowl. Um, many of your listeners might have trouble picturing you as a committed master's degree student at one of the best journalism schools in the world. What was that like, and how did it prepare you to be a respected sports journalist at the Enquirer? It was the best year of my life, certainly the year I learned the most. To this day, the people at the University of Rhode Island cannot believe I got in. I cannot believe it either. I I got had a very good uh, cumulative average, but it was based on a lot of courses in home economics and <laughs> horticulture, which was later called plant science and made it sound a little bit better. I, I learned how to arrange bushes. Not that I have ever done that since then, but um, I got in. I thought it was because of the power of my essays. And then I was at a class with one of the greatest teachers I've ever had, Judith Christ, 
sure. the, um, the movie critic. From, she's the, from a the New Yorker. Brilliant writing uh, teacher. She was brilliant at it. And she's reading from my essay in a class setting. Wow. Yeah. And she's mocking me. And she's, who wrote this? And I, she go, and they let you in? <laughs> and I went, I'm as surprised as you are. And um, when I got there, I knew right away. You got to understand I was in Rhode Island. I, I always had this sense that I was in the minor leagues until I walked uh, into that first class at Columbia. And these were some really smart people. I sat next to um, Catherine Field, the daughter of the um, the department store magnate Marshall Field. Sure. Um, and all these other people I come from all parts of the world, not just the country. And I just kept saying, how the heck did I get here? I don't understand this. But I did okay there because I had experience for a few years at a small newspaper the last year, actually the editor of it, and I had enough journalism experience that gave me a chance to succeed against some of these amazing people. And... Um, it's also where I made my declaration that I wanted to be in sports. I wanted to write sports. And my advisor was uh, a former uh, managing editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal, Norman Isaacs. And he looked at me and he went, sports? You understand this school. We have foreign correspondents. We have incredibly impactful columnists. And, and um, far, I mean, you want to, you could... Do any job in journalism you want. You want to write sports. You want to write about games. And I said, yeah, I do. Because real life is a little too strong for me. <laughs> and um, he said, well, then you have to make me two promises. One is, don't breathe a word of this to anyone. <laughs> and secondly is, and this is the one I took really seriously. Second one is, do it the way a journalist does it. Hold people accountable. Cover it like you would cover City Hall or like you would cover the White House. Ask the toughest questions. Get the answers that people want to have, the questions that people want answered. And I did. And I made a ton of enemies by doing that. So when you got to WIP and your boss, Tom Bigby, said, forget everything you learned right. at Columbia, right. in your own mind, you yep. said, uh, sorry, that's not going to happen. Well, I didn't totally discard it because here's the thing. I understood now that what my new job was more a performance, mm -hmm. that I had to be interesting every day. And that required me to amplify my personality some. It evolved over the 33 years. But um, it also, I used the journalism every time I did an interview. Right. Suddenly you would hear somebody who was not the screaming moron that I sometimes was on the air. This was a guy asking serious questions that I think the fans wanted. So I never lost it, but I was told really early on that, that that's not going to work in radio. Serious doesn't work in radio, at least not in sports radio in Philadelphia, because it isn't that serious. It isn't as serious as gun control and on all the uh, uh, climate, all, all the things that really matter in people's life. This is the diversion. This is what we do to have fun. So I need to have fun with it, and I need to have a persona that kind of meshes with that concept. 
So I became louder and I became goofier and funnier sometimes and very provocative. And that's what saved me. That's how I got through it. This is interesting. At, at some point you said to yourself, who I am is not who I need to be on WIP. So yes. I have to create another Angelo Cataldi. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you, Angelo, yep. and you are uh, a thoughtful, um, so smart, mm. um, temperate right. person. This is this conversation, to this point anyway, is not the Angelo Cataldi that I listened to for decades. Well, here's the thing, all right? That persona was based on who I am. Mm-hmm. When I'm watching a football game, right. I'm, a, I'm still kind of a lunatic, all right? I'm still yelling and screaming. But um, if I did that in my real life, I would be gone by now. I wouldn't be able, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to maintain that, right? But at the same time, the more you talk to the fan, the more you channel the passion that they have. Right. And you I wanted said, you wanted to be you wanted to exude the passion that the Philadelphia fan base has. Exactly. The voice of the fans. Right. I That's what I reference myself rather than modestly the last seven or eight years. Because I really felt like I was finally at that point where I was thinking like them, I was reacting like them, and I was um having more fun with it but it took a long time to get there. My son, my older son, Josh, who is now 35, he is a a promotion and marketing guru at NBC Sports. He actually gathered some friends when he was in high school and showed up at 6 a.m. at what was then the Wachovia Center for Wing Bowl. Now, I, I have to admit, I was kind of appalled that he wanted to go and actually went. And many of my former colleagues, female colleagues, thought Wing Bowl was a disgusting, misogynistic, abhorrent display of human banality. But you were proud of Wing Bowl. In the context of it being an incredibly successful annual radio promotion, nobody that I know of has come up with one that could get 20,000 fans into an arena at 6 o'clock in the morning to watch people basically gobble down chicken wings. It's a bizarre, it's an insane premise. No one would buy it. But we we started it as an event in the hotel lobby, the Wyndham Franklin Plaza. We got 200 people. They said, the Wyndham Franklin Plaza said to us, this is a nice hotel, don't do that again. (laughs) So we started going to bars, and then we moved up to nightclubs, and we went up to uh, Electric Factory. And then Ed Rendell, who is a tremendous, he's all through this book. He was constantly involved in the crazy stuff we were doing. Ed Rendell offered us one of the dates that the city gets every year to go to the Spectrum. And that's the last big move, because once we did that, we expanded it. It got more publicity, and um, it got to a point where it was really getting a lot of international attention. And then we peaked, and then it went bad. And it went bad because... How did, when you say it went bad, what do you mean? It got too tawdry. It got too sordid. It got misogynistic. 
two things were happening. One is it was getting worse. And the second was the world was getting more politically correct. That it was reaching a point where the two could not coexist. But I was the last man standing and trying to get it back for a 27th year. We find, the whole premise of it, Al Morgani, was, this was his brainchild, and um, he said we should do it because the Eagles never go to the Super Bowl. They went one time, they lost. When they won, the next morning he said, great, wing bowl's over. Right, right. And I went, no, come on, one more. The last wing bowl, can you imagine how we could promote that? And I had no support. But I look back on it with mixed feelings. The good feelings are, man, we got a lot of attention. It put WIP on the map all over the country and beyond. Um, the negative is now people look at it in the way you described it, which my wife would agree 100% with that. She also refused to come the last few years herself. And it's like, well, it got out of control. We couldn't handle it. But in its day, it was a heck of an event. And I, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and go, man, I went to nine of them. I went to 11 of them, and I go, I guess it worked for some people. You know, it was hard. I mean, it was hard to do because we're not event planners, but we filled that place for 15 years. The last 15 years, we had sellouts for every single time we did it, and then we left on top, except it wasn't. It was a mess by then, but we still had high popularity, lots of attention, which is what a radio promotion is supposed to do. I want to ask you about certain sports figures uh, now and in the past. And I'm a little uncomfortable doing this, Angelo, because <laughs> I read the book. I read your book. And I don't want these particular individuals to think that I necessarily share right. your views. And so for the record, <laughs> I think they're all great. <laughs> Thank you. Upstanding representatives of their sport. Um, and of course, I hardly know many of them. But Let's go. Um, you talk about what you call your festering hatred of former Eagles coach Andy Reid. Hate at first sight. What's wrong with Andy Reid? If you dealt with him every day, Jim Gardner, I promise you, you would share my feelings. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why. Because the one thing I know you value highest is honesty. You want to hear, after a game, you would like a coach to explain why he did what he did when he did it. It's not asking that much. We are, we are doing this the morning after the Eagles beat Andy Reid in a Monday night game. Andy Reid, after the game that the Eagles beat him in, said three times to the Kansas City media, I got to do a better job. He's rolling out the same have tired Haven't we heard that before? Now, I ask, I mean, you cover political figures. They have to answer a question once in a while. They can't have their robotic script of exactly what they say after a win, exactly what they say after a loss, and never feel enough respect for the people that are buying those tickets, people that are watching those games, to give them a little insight. And I'll give you an example of somebody who proved you can do it in this city and was a champion. And that's Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson was on our show every day after every Eagles game for five years. And Doug Peterson 
would admit mistakes the next day, Jim. He, one time they tied Cincinnati, and he came on the next day, and he went, you know, I've been looking at it. I haven't slept all night. I've been looking at it. We should have gone for it on fourth down. We should not have done what I did. And I went, wow, that's, how hard is that? You can't do that? What's so wrong about that? Who, what player are you alienating by saying that? Andy Reid never had enough respect for the fans in Philadelphia to give them a straight answer to a fair question. And I think that's the same standard you would use. <clears throat> Apparently not. <laughs> the, few times, the few times that I have met Reid's boss, Jeff Lurie, he has been nothing but cordial and kind. But you said something about him that was uh, decidedly different. You want to read that? It's it's five on your on your list. Okay. It might be on the second page. The feud my listeners knew the least about was my total disconnect with the most powerful man in Philadelphia sports over the past quarter of a century, Eagles owner Jeff Lurie. He hated me, and I saw him for what he really was, a very good owner who was also pompous and insecure. Jeff Lurie rescued the Eagles from the Norman Brayman hellscape mm-hmm. in 1994. That's true. Made the Eagles a recurring playoff contender, has taken the Eagles to three Super Bowls, one championship, and his players take part in community activity even Mondays after terrible losses. So mm. what is the problem with right, Jeffrey Lurie? I said he's a very good owner. Right. But also pompous and insecure. Um, you know, may it, part of it may be that, that he refused to come on our show for 25 years. I was wondering about that. That has to be. <laughs> I'm not hiding from that. That's probably a big part of it. But um, he, there was a letter, and I guess it was 1999, after the incident with Donovan McNabb, an incident totally um, the responsibility of Mayor Ed Rendell. Then. You're talking about the Dirty 30. The Dirty 30, the trip to New York, and the booing of Donovan McNabb. It actually is a booing of the pick. We wanted Ricky Williams to... Actually, the pick was good, <laughs> as history would show. But um, they were so angry. The Eagles were so angry that they wrote a letter to Paul Tagliabue, the uh, commissioner, to Mel Carmazin, who ran Infinity uh, Broadcasting, and to my bosses, uh, Cecil Forster and Tom Bigby. And I don't have the exact letter in front of me, but the implication was this guy is not doing the NFL any good. This is bad for us, and I don't like it. And I took from that that he wouldn't have minded at all if they pushed me out. And I guess that also is something I, I calculated. But the last few years, the last 10 years, Lurie holds a news conference once or twice a year, only when the team is going well, and only to pontificate on the business principles that have made him a billionaire. I don't think that's speaking the language of the Philadelphia sports fan. Before there was Howie Roseman, there was Joe Banner. I I have Mm -hmm. met Joe Banner on several occasions, actually had lunch with him once years ago, Maybe not the easiest person to break the ice with, but then again, neither am I. I found him cordial and incredibly informative, but you have a problem with Joe Banner. If you found him informative and cordial, 
you need to talk to the people that dealt with him every day. We were talking earlier about combative people, like I guess we were when we were with our people. Joe Banner alienated everyone. Joe Banner, there was a um, outdoors hockey game when he was here that they had to put into Citizens Bank Park because he made outrageous demands. My hatred for him, and I don't hide that word, I can't stand that man, came about when the Eagles moved from Veterans Stadium to Lincoln Financial Field, and he saw this as an opportunity to exclude from the fans the chance to bring their own sandwiches into the games. And um, it was referred to as Hoagie Gate. And I went crazy on the air about this because I knew that he was just doing it to line his pockets a little more. And some of the money for the link was public money. And he didn't even acknowledge that. And um, so I, I, I fought. I ended up getting suspended because I was really, I got too emotional. I made a bad um, reference and, um, about the, the security people and how they were taking away the sandwiches and stuff. You compared them to, uh, uh, the, to Gestapo. The yeah. Gestapo. Yeah. And, um, and I regret that. That was passion that was stupidity in the moment of emotion but um that was him that's the way he did things he was not at any point fan friendly and if you were not fan friendly in philadelphia you were my enemy so in the end i made a big issue about it and when things had quieted down he quietly dropped the project and they let people bring their sandwiches in and i think that's the the time that i said you know what I'm going to be a voice for the fans. They've given me a lot of great years here, and I'm going to I'm going to really be their advocate. And I, more than ever after that, I was. And more than ever, I couldn't stand that guy. And uh, final great story. I love this story, all right? I'm going in for colon resection surgery. I'm in the hospital. And um, I've already been in the hospital a week waiting for them to be able to do it. And Rhea Hughes calls me and says, you're not going to believe this. Joe Banner just got fired. I've got the markings on my <laughs> stomach of where they're going to do the surgery. And I go, get me on the ear. I wasn't drugged yet. And I went on basically to, to gloat about the fact that my nemesis was no longer there. But Jim, he was nice to you. He wasn't nice to most people. Buddy Ryan. Tell me about Angelo Cataldi's views on Buddy Ryan. Well, I had a different perspective because I covered him. And I covered him when he first came here and made a lot of ridiculous predictions and uh, declarations. But the but fans it, loved Buddy Ryan. Well, here's the thing. I was still using the Columbia standard. If you're going to say things, I'm going to hold you accountable. I was the beat guy covering them for the Inquirer the first year he was here. Got to midseason, nothing he said was panning out at all. He said they were going to win all their division games. They hadn't won any of them. So I asked for a week off, and I did an analysis. And they ran it big in the Enquirer, and basically I said, this guy's a fraud. And um, as a result of that, they took that and other stories I had written in my covers that year, and they, um, they put him in as an entry for the Pulitzer Prize. And I did was named a nominee, I was a finalist. And I was wrong. <laughs> the thing is, I, I say in the book that it's a darn good thing I didn't win because 
A, I would never be able to go on the radio. You have a whole different, once you have that, you go in a different direction. But I miscalculated what he was actually doing, which was he was really channeling the fans. He was bold and brash like And he understood that. He did, and I didn't. That was the that was the sad part of it. I didn't. And um fan interest in the Eagles from the day Buddy got here to today is much, much bigger because of him. And I didn't for a really long time understand what he did there. And when I did, I gave him his due. I apologized to him. He kind of befriended me toward the end. He was on our show quite a few times near the end. And um, he also, by the way, had two personas. He had the, the, the persona you saw when he was a coach and he was going to knock everybody's head off. And the, and the more thoughtful side of him that he did. And he was kind of doing what I ended up doing, and that is amplifying for the sake of uh, bonding with the fans. It took a long time for you and Dick Vermeil to uh, oh, boy. come together a little bit. And he was not a fan of your style of communication. Dick Vermeil, I honestly, Dick was on a lot when when I was with Brookie because they were very close friends. And then as soon as Brookie was gone, Dick was gone. Tom Brookshire, yeah, Tom Brookshire. Um, they were very close, and it, it came through me through a back channel that um, my style of sports radio was not in keeping with Dick's style, which I wouldn't think it would be because he was a very Wow, you want to talk about obsessed. You want to talk about committed to the job. Brilliant at that. And um, many years passed. And I thought, well, that's never going to happen. And we were at a, a restaurant in Stone Harbor, and my wife saw him. He was in the corner. And she said, go over and see him. I said, no, he's going to yell at me. What am I going to do that for? Go ahead, just Say, Dick, I, I just want to know how much I admire you. And so I went over, and, and he was very cordial. And within a couple of weeks, he had signed to be a regular guest on our show on Fridays before games. And never was there a more enlightening, more interesting, more likable human being than Dick Vermeil. And one of the things I'm happiest about that I ended, he's even got a blurb on my, on my book. I ended my career at WIP as friends with Dick Vermeil, and at least I got that one right in the end. Yeah, yeah. And and is there a man who? What is he? Eighty six somewhere. Eighty six. Wow. Uh, what kind of shape he is I in? Don't know. Physically, mentally, it's extraordinary. Yeah. He and Dave Roberts. They should write <laughs> a book. Right. I don't know how they that they, they still look great. Exactly how? right. How? Don't know. Um, I want you to read me, if you would, uh, and that may be on the next page, unless you've turned the page already. Um, Charlie Manuel. The Philadelphia Phillies fan base loves Charlie. They do. What did you think about Charlie Manuel, eh, no thank you. He should have won three World Series with that roster. Manuel was a country bumpkin. Unfortunately, the new skipper was also a new listener in his first weeks as Philly's manager and didn't take kindly to our depiction of him. So he boycotted our show right up to the second to last day when he sent a 30-second message that was as sincere as my subsequent thank you to him. 
Let me ask you a question. Do, do you, fair to say that your feelings about a particular sports figure often hinge on whether that particular sports figure likes you? You're noticing a trend here, right? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that absolutely has it. But normally, I guess I would I would always identify it as, well, if Charlie Manuel is not talking to us and we're the highest rated show in sports in Philadelphia in the morning, um, then he's not talking to the fans. So I'll say, even if, there were a lot of people who no, came but he was that. on the air all the time with, uh, other, with other stations right. and television. I mean, right. Channel 6 had him right. on the air almost every day during baseball season. Do you think the Phillies would have won more than one championship if Jim Leland was named the manager? I know you had this love affair with Jim Leland, and you say that you, say that, you know the Phillies won uh, in spite of Charlie Emanuel. I mean, you really think that's fair? Yeah, I do. I, I really, look. His general manager was Ruben Amaro Jr. the last few years. And Ruben was a regular co-host on our show the last two years. And it came up more than once. And I said, Ruben, you know the roster you guys had. 06, 07, 08, 9, 10. The best roster, 11. 11 was an incredible team, 102 wins. You won one championship. Should you have won more? Yes. You think you would have won more? If Manuel were not your manager, no comment, which I take as a yes. Um, he was, look, he's a folk hero. You're right. He's lovable. People loved him. That's the thing that I respect about my, my dislike for Manuel and Reed and those people. I yelled and screamed for years about these guys. I changed almost no one's opinion. <laughs> it was my opinion. But I think they would have done better without him. Uh, maybe the Philadelphia Phillies fan base, maybe their favorite team was the 1993 Phillies. Oh, wow. Um, and mm. and yet you, they did that not persuade bad. you. No. That, that we, were, we were in the wrong about all of that. We were nuts. We were 1993. We were just trying to, we were in the prime shock jock era of our show. We, Howard Stern was the, the big ratings guy. And we went, just go right to the edge. Go as far as you have to. And we alienated them to such a point where you know, Jim Fregosi came out and he said, uh, people who work at WIP sleep with their mothers or something like that. And he, it was really awful. It was, it was as nasty a blood feud for a few weeks as anything I'd ever seen. Um, but they didn't win, Jim. You know, the one thing I did, I had 132 seasons in my 33 years. Four major sports, 133. Two championships, Phillies in 08, Eagles in 17. If you fell short, even if you were loved by the, by the fans, I was probably going to take a lot of points off because you didn't have the parade. I think that's harsh. Yeah. I do think that's harsh. You know, winning, winning a championship depends on so many things. Um, but I understand, you know, that's that was your philosophy, and obviously it was effective. Yeah. Um, John Cruck, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a successful broadcaster now right. with the Phillies. Um, Phillies fans, television viewers love him. He does. You didn't. You didn't love him. I do now. <laughs> um, 
What I do like about all that, because the guy who is the ringleader was Darren Dalton. Darren Dalton. And Darren Dalton really, really despised us, and we gave him good reason to. And many years later, I got to know him. I, I met him at Clearwater and got to talk to him. And um, It's funny how those feuds in the moment go away with time. And, and people, and I see him differently. And now Ruben Amaro and so many other people said, you don't understand. That guy was the greatest leader I ever were, played with. I wasn't aware of it at the time. And, and they looked at us and went, you know what, you're doing your job. And they have a more philosophical. And we got together and, and we had some good conversations. It, he, he left us way, way too early. But um, back then, Jim, we were just taking no prisoners. That's what WIP was in the mid-90s. It was insane. But we did mellow some, <laughs> but not to the point where, um, where I think it is going now, which is going to be a lot more. Um, well, in your, I mean, post Cataldi, mm. it's a different show. It is. It is. Uh, Josh Harris, owner of the Sixers. Now, I give him and Scott O'Neill credit for taking a moribund franchise and bringing intense energy into the Wells Fargo Center, making the Sixers a playoff team. I have a problem, and I want to know if you share this. I have a problem knowing that the owner of the Sixers is rooting against the Eagles and yeah. against the Flyers because he owns their competitors. Right. And John Middleton is a Philadelphian. Jeff Lurie really has become a Philadelphian. But the people and the people who run and own the Flyers are Philadelphians. Harris is philanthropic, including Philadelphia Pal, but his primary residences have been in New York and in Miami which makes me think, well, I won't even say the name Norman Brayman. And it feels like the Sixers, it feels like the Sixers are more of an asset oh. to Harris than they are a passion. Is that fair? Am I right about that? Yeah, to the point that I would say, I would challenge when you said that he's such a big fan of the, the commanders and um, the devils over our teams. He's a fan of his bottom line. He's the ultimate hedge fund billionaire he is about the money all these purchases that he's making i mean now he owns an nfl franchise that is idiot proof you can't lose money owning an nfl franchise. i think he's always been a fan of the of the yeah. washington franchise the old okay. redskins but i, I never hit that he's the new owner the the people like john middleton there are way fewer of them now and more corporate types that see it as the great as the great um, invest, investment. I think it'd be terrible if he ends up building this new arena in Center City. Really? I, I really love the fact that in our city we have this sports complex which accommodates all of our major teams. And why are you going to put this in Chinatown, completely change the culture there? And um, all these promises they make about the neighborhoods. My master's thesis was on the neighborhood around Yankee Stadium when they refurbished it in 74. None of that stuff ever yeah, happened for the happened. neighborhood. Right. It's just basically for the owner in the arena. So I say, eh, not one of my favorites. Allen Iverson. Love, 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 love. Now that's a whole different thing. Two reasons, right? One is he was the most fun of any player that you would in, in basketball that you would ever watch. I lo Even when they were losing, it was so much fun to watch him play. He was a warrior. He, he sacrificed everything on the court. He was as committed as you can be.
But as a talk show host, he was also pretty awesome because he always got in trouble. He always had controversy swirling around him, which gave us a lot more to talk about and really helped in, in the Pat Croce era. It really helped to, to make them more relevant. And they became a major, major sport on our station and on our show because of Allen Iverson. Charles Barkley. Just a great character, a great, great character. And, um, you know, he was a controversial figure when he was a player, and now he's just as controversial as a broadcaster. And we should embrace that kind of a personality. He really is Philadelphia. He's funny, he fights, he's controversial, perfect. One of the, another, also another great talk show host guy because we had plenty to talk about with Charles. If you ask uh, an NBA fan today, particularly of a certain age, you know, who's the greatest player in the history of uh, the National Basketball Association? Some would say LeBron James. Some would say Michael Jordan. Right. If you ask an, an older fan, you know, they might be talking about Elgin Baylor or Oscar Robertson. Uh, uh, I was going to say Lou Alcindor. Um, that's, that shows you where No, let me where tell you something. Right. He, um, he was great. He was great. Uh, In both names. <laughs> right. Uh, but you've got somebody else. Well, yeah. I When I was a kid, I was a contrarian when I grew up in New England. So I automatically would not root for any Boston teams. So I would tend to gravitate toward the rivals. And the rival of the Celtics then was the Sixers. And they had a man in the middle. Uh, product of Overbrook High, right here in Philadelphia, Will Chamberlain. And if anybody out there would like to tell me that Will Chamberlain wasn't the greatest individual player that ever played the game, I would uh, refer you to the NBA record book all these years later because he holds many of the biggest scoring. He once averaged 48.5 minutes per game. That's more than there are minutes in a game. They included the overtime. He never left the court. There was no such thing as load management when Wilt Chamberlain played. He could play a high-scoring game. He could play a great defensive game. One year, he, he led the league in assists from the center position. And he was an incredibly compelling character who I got to meet. He was my boyhood hero. and I got to meet him when he was touring for his book in 1992 and I was not journalistic that day. <laughs> Even though you, you hated the Boston Celtics, you acknowledge that Bill Russell yeah. is the best team player in the history yeah. of the NBA. I, I finally made that concession. I would never, <laughs> Al Morgani comes from Boston. He was my co-host and um, he would always argue that and I would always say, oh, please. Then you say to yourself, well, if I'm going to define who's good and who's not by championships, well, it's over. He won 11. He was incredible. And, and that's why the debate on who is the greatest player of all time probably should go to Bill Russell because the most important thing is how many rings you have. I read in your book how it was policy at WIP to – pretend i suppose that the philadelphia flyers didn't exist you weren't going to talk about them they were not worthy of your attention um it, flyers fans are hopeful yeah at this as we as we record this conversation they've won five games in a row is it possible mm -hmm. uh you know the flyers are uh 
embarking on a renaissance. And if you were running WIP today, would you say, okay, we've got to talk about the Flyers again? I would do it if they lost every game because the president of the team now is my former co-host, Keith Jones, who I love like no other, no person I ever work with, though I have as much an affection as I have for Jonesy. Um, that decision to really downgrade the Flyers was made solely on numbers. 97, I guess it was, the Flyers were in the finals. Um, I believe that I was, um, yeah, I was still working for the Inquirer back then. The numbers that came out, we, we spoke maybe 70, 75% of our shows were hockey. And the numbers came out, and they were the worst numbers we had probably in the 33 years I was there. Because the people, this is still an Eagle City with the Phillies right next to them. Uh, basketball is solid, but not anywhere close to those two teams. And the Flyers right now, especially when they're losing the way they have the last seven or eight years, are not on the map. They'll be back on the map. 74-75, when they, the, those parades were the greatest th- parades ever held for sports teams in the, in the country. So they can come back, but they're going to have to earn their way back, and they're also going to need more personality. They need more Jeremy Roenicks, uh, Ron Hextall's people that stir it up. Why did, you, why did you dislike Bobby Clark? Because, I had, because he lied to me. I, I covered him. In 1983, it was one year I covered hockey. Al, was, Al Morgani was covering the Olympic Games in L.A. And um, he basically made some comments about the fact that his coach, Bob McKimmon, wanted him to take a vacation every March because he wanted him fresh for the playoffs. He was in his mid-30s, still a good player, but he needed a break. And he hated it. And he one day told me, that he wasn't doing it, he didn't care, et cetera, et cetera, and I wrote it, and then he denied it. And, and then everybody piled in on this guy who doesn't know hockey covering the team. But I recorded it, and I played it. And people went, well, I guess he said it. All right, and they just let it drop, Jim. I, but so, so one unfortunate, I don't know how you want to describe it. No, no. One I, disingenuous interaction right. with Bobby Clark, right. and that was it from that point on. Well, you then, never, when he was a GM, he didn't answer questions, honestly. Yeah. Uh, he just, he didn't. Can you tell me a GM who does answer <laughs> questions, honestly? Oh, let me think about that. Yeah. Seriously. I got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. Right. I guess they don't. But I still want them to. I still think there's a way to do that. Do me a favor. Read your quote on Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno. What has always amazed me is how the most thorough and dedicated football coach in history could have missed for 30 years the molestation of children right under his nose. And you ask the question, Joe Paterno, legend or criminal? So which is it? Criminal is strong, but not a legend. Not if you do that. There's no way on earth he didn't know what was going on. He covered it up. So if you're covering up the assault of children, I guess you're a criminal. It's harsh. It's tough to accept from a guy who is as brilliant as he was as a coach, but Jim... This is real life. This isn't games. And, and he, he failed the biggest test of his career 
when he let Jerry Sandusky do what he did for as long as he did. Every time Penn State loses to Michigan and Ohio State, you know that a significant portion of the fan base yearns for the days of, of Joe Paterno. Oh, without a doubt. But um, what I learned from the Paterno thing was that Happy Valley is appropriately named, that they have insulated themselves from reality, especially when it comes to Paterno. All of our lives, personally, professionally, were impacted by the pandemic. Your mom caught the pandemic. The, the, uh, your mom caught COVID. Mm. Your mom caught COVID uh, when she was ninety-eight years old. What, yeah. what was that experience like? Well, wow. She got COVID, and I. She's up in Rhode Island with my sister, and I hear about it, and I go, "Well, that's a death sentence." She's gone. And this was right in the teeth of it, 2020. And then I got a call a few days later. She's beating it. She's winning. But they were in a, um, she was in a nursing home. And they were stretched to the limits. They had so many people with the, with the COVID and they were fighting for their lives. And they weren't able to answer a call when she needed to go from her wheelchair to her bed. And she fell. And uh, it ultimately was fatal. She died because of that. And um, the thing that, that I'll never fully be able to accept is that I didn't have closure. You know, I was there when my dad passed away. And um, my mom, she did so much for me. She made me a sports fan. She, did, she played the role of the typical 50s mother, and then a lot of the typical 50s father. She took me to games. She did that, all that stuff. And I never got to say goodbye to her. And um, that resonates. I'll never, I'll never be able. There's still a part of me that can't believe she's not there because she lived 98 years. And I didn't see her in the last couple of months. I'll always hate COVID for that. COVID and... Uh and the presidency of Donald Trump um, provoked interest in politics like we really hadn't seen in a long time. The sharp divide, the, the polarization of uh, our society, that showed up on your show, didn't it? And, and you didn't like a minute of it. We didn't have any choice. Um, they shut down sports for a couple of months. And we were a sports station. And we were still doing a show every day and WIP did an amazing job of keeping our workplace safe we still went into the studio every day and um we had no choice but to talk about COVID and the impact it was having on people we had no choice but to um talk about COVID because there was no sports to talk about and that's what everybody cared about in that moment and um we started to really become strident about vaccines. And we saw a division that was astonishing. Right. It, it was almost like Eagles Cowboys, but in real life. And what I took from that experience, because I made this decision to not really be a serious journalist and to go into sports, was, man, that was the right decision. I just hated it. I hated the politics of it. 
people would call who were Trumps. People would call who were anti-Trumps. They would fight. Vaccines, pro-vaccines, anti-vaxxers. That was really the, the, the that was really the lightning rod. Yeah. But that brought out all the other anger politically, and um, I was in over my head. I tried to not alienate half of my audience every day because I am not strong politically and I am not educated politically to the point where my opinion should matter. Yet, what am I going to do for four hours? So we discussed it. And when they started back up with sports, it was one of the greatest reliefs of my career because I could stop doing that. We did have Jim Kenny on a couple of times, and he really developed a deep dislike for me in the course of all that. <laughs> uh, we've spent a fair amount of time together here today, yeah. and I think you're terrific. <laughs> well, thank you. That means a lot to me, Jim. I was no. a big fan. Um, so your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, your book is really dedicated to the fans of Philadelphia, and you pay tribute with obvious gratitude to callers like Arson Arney and Kenny Justice, and they, along with your colleagues like Al Morganti and Rhea Hughes and Keith Jones and Joe Conklin, how are they a part of the real Angelo Cataldi legacy? More than ever, believe it or not, now that I'm off the year, I, I had them over for a couple of the Eagles games because I wanted to experience it. This Eagles surely is insanely passionate i mean wow she's just so over the top but it's real she really cares that much and she was in my living room with arsenani and arsenani you know he's kind of he's not quite as healthy as he used to be he had some brain surgery which we covered on the air as it went through it but he's still arsenani and he's still he's so negative and fun to listen to in the course of a game what i learned and doing this book is, those were the stars, not the players, not us, not the guests, all the great guests we had. They were the people. They were, they were the one constant in all the years that I was there. Some of them were there. As I've started this book tour and met people who say, I listened to you from the first day with Brookie. And you go, wow, that's loyalty. It's, it's crazy. I, Somewhere in there, I would have quit on myself, you know? But they hung in with me, and they were the stars. And they're going to be the stars 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, because they're the lifeblood of sports in Philadelphia. Angelo, thanks for talking to me. It was an honor, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Like his legion of fans, for decades, Angelo entertained me, provoked me, and more than a few times left me shaking my head because I thought he had gone too far with this or that. But while some other members of the sports media were afraid of offending our sports heroes, Angelo Cataldi understood that that was unavoidable if he was to hold them accountable and demand a little authenticity. And that he did for 33 years. Angelo is gone from the frenetic sports radio landscape. He will not soon be forgotten. Jim Gardner, More to Explore, was produced by Jim Gardner Productions in 6ABC Philadelphia. Matteo Iadonisi and I produced and edited this podcast. If you found this conversation worthwhile, please subscribe and tell a friend. Word of mouth is an effective way to help podcasts grow. Thanks for listening. I'm Jim Gardner.
This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Services, heating, cooling, and plumbing experts. Horizonservices.com.